Welcome to episode number 154 of the Jackson Hole Connection. Support for this episode comes from Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling, and they're reminding you to reduce, reuse, recycle, and compost. Whenever possible, avoid using those single-use products, such as little plastic bags. And remember to use reusable bags whenever you go shopping. It's easy. Just pack them into your bike or your car, and they're convenient for you to grab. Also sponsoring this episode is the Deli at Jackson Hole Marketplace. Go on down and visit Anna and Lauren, who are sure to make you something which will build yum in your belly. Welcome to the Jackson Hole Connection. I'm Stephen Clark Abrams, your host. I've met many of you folks while walking around town, being a part of organizations, or maybe on the top of Table Mountain. Who knows, we can all meet each other and share some stories. And my mission is to bring you fascinating stories of people connected to Jackson Hole. I feel that when we are sharing stories, we're sharing a little piece of ourselves. And by sharing stories, it all helps us to grow and learn so we can live full lives. Get out there and share your story and get out there and learn a story of somebody else who you don't know. My guest today is John Sims. John's a 60 year resident of this valley who's made huge impacts, not only to our local community, but the global community. John has many experiences to share from his years in the valley. And today we're only gonna have time to touch on just a few of those. John is really an inspiring figure to me for his willingness to give something a shot. He sees a problem or an opportunity, I should say, and gets out there and just comes up with a solution. John's also known for his gentleman values and his genuine kindness. John's contributions to outdoor life might not always be known when you're out enjoying the outdoors, but I truly believe for John, what is important is to know people are enjoying the outdoors safely, that people are leaving the space as it was when they first arrived and are preserving the space for others to use. To learn more about John Sims and his life of invention and adventure, visit the JacksonHoleConnection.com, episode number 154. John, thank you for coming over and joining me here today at the Jackson Hole Connection. Wonderful to see you this morning. Yeah, it's a pleasure being here, and I, I appreciate the uh, this option. You're you're very welcome. You are a person of many many talents, and you've been here in the valley for a few years now. Yeah, it's been uh, almost sixty years. Sixty years, and so you weren't born here. Where did you grow up, and how did you land here in Jackson Hole, Wyoming? 60 years ago, of all places. Well, I actually, I was raised in western New York uh, in the Allegheny Mountains, and I, I was, uh, my parents were good skiers when I was, when I was young, and we, uh, we were in the Allegheny Mountains and had a ski area only about 20 miles away, and, and uh, so I, I grew up skiing and uh, became pretty good, and I subsequently went, uh, went away to a prep school in Connecticut, and then went to college in New York, and then went in the Navy, and I was, uh, interestingly, I was stationed on a, a radar picket ship in the North Atlantic, and we would go out for 30 days uh, in the North Atlantic, which is infamous for terrible storms, and, and uh, 
on a small ship, and we'd get tossed around. Uh, I was a railerman, and uh, uh, after two years of that, I got an early out to go to school. I went to college in western New York at Hobart College and was there for a couple of years and uh, as an English major and suddenly got wanderlust and I, 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 I said, I'm, I'm going west. And I, I was very fortunate at the time that I had been able to pick up a little Jaguar XK120 convertible and it was just a great car to go west in. And so I, a friend of mine said, well, can I go with you? And I said, yeah, sure. So <laughs> we took off, and we ended up in Georgetown, Colorado, up in the mountains. And the next day, I uh, I went over to Arapahoe Basin. Uh, it was winter by then, and, and the ski area was open. And I happened to ride up the chair with the ski area manager. And we took a couple of runs together, and he said, he said, uh, well, how'd you learn to ski so well? And I said, well, I, I've been skiing since I was four or five years old. And uh, he said, well, would you like to be a professional ski patrolman? And I said, boy, that sounds really interesting, <laughs> but I, I really don't know anything about first aid. And he said, well, you're a good skier. We can teach you first aid. And so... Uh, I became a professional ski patrolman, and that entailed a lot of avalanche control. Uh, Rapo Basin was up at about 12,000 feet uh, elevation and a very rugged mountain with a lot of uh, avalanche problems, and I subsequently became, quote, uh, an avalanche expert and uh, spent the next couple of years at, as a professional ski patrolman. And then I had an offer to go to Vail and be kind of their avalanche person at Vail when Vail was first opening. And I did that and ran the avalanche program over at Vail. And then I was offered a job at the Jackson Hole Ski Patrol. And I thought, boy, that sounds great. So I ended up moving to Jackson and I thought, well, now I've got a job as a ski patrolman in the winter. What am I going to do in the summer? And I'd done an awful lot of canoeing in my life. And uh, I saw these people, uh, these guys taking people down the river in rafts from Jackson Lake Lodge on, on the Snake River. And I thought, boy, that looks interesting. So I bought an Army surplus or Navy surplus uh, yellow raft and uh, made myself available to take people down the river. And suddenly that became very popular. And I, I happened to go up to the, the Flag Ranch in the upper Snake River to a place very few people, very few people knew about. And there's a canyon up there that uh, in the spring has six, seven-foot waves in it. And it's a beautiful, beautiful, tight canyon. And I started taking people down the river and, and th at the flag ranch at that time had a was right along the highway and I put out a little desk and, and hired a gal to sit <laughs> at the desk and, and uh, tell people about this trip and all of a sudden it was really really busy and I was taking 12 or 14 trips a day down through that through the canyon and people were just loving it and I started evening trips, taking people down to the Jackson Lake and the lower, the 
lower part of the Upper Snake River, and that really took off. And by that time, uh, I was married to a great gal, and, and we were living up there in a tent uh, near the Flag Ranch. You were living in a tent? Yeah. Okay. And we uh, subsequently became married and uh, had a daughter, and I thought, boy, I've got to find a place to live in Jackson. So I, I, down in Jackson, I was driving around, and I happened to drive up the Fish Creek Road north of Wilson, which was just a, a dirt road with a two-track. And there was a house at the very end of the road about, uh, I guess it was 10 miles north of Wilson on the on the uh, on a dirt road and uh, this was a, a 2,000 square foot log building with a fireplace in it but had no electricity no running water nothing like that and I, I I bought that place on five acres for as I remember it was forty thousand dollars and then I would commute from there up to the flag ranch and I thought boy this is this isn't really working out. So I, I uh, a, a friend Denny Becker had told me about running the uh, Snake River Canyon down below Jackson, and I thought, boy, that sounds interesting. And I still had the little yellow lap, yellow uh, survival rafts, and I went down there and ran it. and And I thought, boy, people would love to do this. <laughs> so I uh, shortly started a company called Wild Water River Trips and bought several boats, and that business just took off like crazy. And uh, I had a little office uh, on the uh, highway in Jackson, and uh, that business really took off. And I had uh, a friend that I had hired uh, earlier named Charlie Sands, and he was running the business up at the Flag Ranch. And so I called this business south of town, uh, Sims and Sands Wildwater River Trips, and that really took off. And at the same time, I was working out at the ski area during the winter as a professional ski patrolman, and I somehow became the guy that would shoot the uh, 75 millimeter recoilless rifle, which uh, had a number of targets. potential avalanche uh, slopes, uh, and I would shoot that gun as many as 30 targets a day going up at, at uh, just at dawn and and shooting, and I thought avalanches were really fascinating, and I started, I, I developed tools for determining mechanical properties of snow, and started this little company called Snow Research Associates and started uh, selling these tools to uh, other ski areas and government agencies that were doing avalanche control work. And uh, <laughs> that was really rewarding because I, I was able to uh, help all these people that were working in the avalanche trade, which was a very small group of people, and became very familiar, and I became, quote, an avalanche expert. Uh, and someone said, well, there are no living experts. They all get killed in avalanches. <laughs> and I had a very high uh, survival instinct. And I I seemed to be able to go on a slope. And I said, boy, this doesn't feel right. And uh, throw a bomb. 
this, this was at the Jacksonville ski area, and so I became an avalanche expert and uh, started this snow research associates, which which really took off. And I was training a lot of avalanche people uh, throughout the country and and Canada, and th- that was very rewarding. But in shooting those guns, particularly the 75 millimeter recoilless rifle, which has a very sharp bang, and uh, I I would try to cover my right ear as much as I could uh, with my shoulder, but that hand was also the one that pulled the trigger to fire the gun. Mm-hmm. So the result was I lost my hearing in that right ear. Um, did they not have uh, ear protection at that time? Yes, he did. But I also had a gunner's mate that I had to communicate with. Uh-huh. And he would have to hand me the artillery round. And they were projectiles that weighed maybe 30 pounds. And unfortunately, the right hand was also the trigger hand. Mm-hmm. So I could cover my left ear with my hand and protect it. But then I had to pull the trigger with my right hand, and I had to have my ear such that I could correspond with my gunner's mate. Mm-hmm. And I was young and foolish at the time and ended up totally destroying my hearing. Mm. Uh, but it, it, that whole advent was starting this whole uh, studying of avalanches and what precipitates them and all. And I wrote a number of papers uh, relating to avalanche control and and forecasting and uh, that was very rewarding and while I was a a ski patrolman oh I I should go back to when I was at Arapahoe Basin Uh, I was was also sort of an inventor and uh, we had we were wearing these goggles called Bosque goggles which were uh, uh, basically, goggles meant for uh, hearing protection, but uh, I mean goggles meant for shooters and for avalanche control. And I, at that altitude, you work up a lot of heat in the body, uh, carrying a backpack full of explosives, and my glasses would always fog up. And we had these goggles called Bosque, and I thought, boy. I could make thermopane goggles with this, and I, uh, I remembered thermopane windows from back when I was a kid in Western New York, and so I, I made my goggles, which were thermopane, to keep them from fogging up, mm. and that that really worked. And uh, more related to that is uh, subsequently. Uh, I went from Arapaho Basin to Vail and ran their avalanche program. And then when I came up to Jackson, I got to know a lot of people in the trade. And there was a fellow, uh, I can't think of his name right now, but he, he developed a thermopane goggle. And his name was Bob Smith, and he called it the Smith Goggle. And I was talking to Bob, and I said, God, this is interesting because when I was a ski patrolman down at Vail, I made thermopane goggles. And he said, stop, I don't want to hear anything more about that. And I said, well, okay, but I just thought it was interesting. And he said, stop, don't say any more. And I later realized that I had preceded his patent. 
And he said, don't tell anybody about this. And I said, I don't care. I'm not going to tell him. I'm not going to challenge your patent or anything. It's, you know, you've You've got a patent on it. Fine. But at the time, he had made his goggles were kind of bubble shaped and they distorted everything. And I said, well, why don't you make them flat? And subsequently, he he made them in flat goggles. Hmm. And it was very interesting because he always, he, he pretty much stopped talking to me. He would nod to me, but avoided any conversations and I said, Bob, I'm not going to challenge your your patent. Don't don't worry about me. We can be friends. And I'm, it's just it's it's not in my interest to challenge your patent. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was a fascinating thing regarding mm. that. But it, it was a little knack I had since I had been a kid, saying, God, why don't people do this? And my father would say, well, go ahead and do it. And I, so I would just go ahead and do things. And that was kind of the advent of my inventing. Uh, and the, my subsequent life uh, of the, having moved my family up the Fish Creek Road in Jackson, I remember uh, talking to the, the county commissioners at, at that time, and they said, why are you living up there? That's in the middle of nowhere. And I said, because I can ski over to my job at Teton Village. And I said, okay. So then when I had the kids, then they said, well, now we're going to have to really plow that road because your kids are going to be going to the Wilson School and we're going to have to plow that road for you, and that's going to cost the county something like $50,000 a year to plow just to open that road for you. And it, or subsequently, it became a great place to live, and a lot of they paved the road, and, and, and it became a, a great place to live. I love it. I love it. That's so, awesome. John, we're going to have a quick break to have a word from one of our sponsors, and then we'll be right back. Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling is reminding you to bring reusable bags whenever you go shopping for groceries or at your favorite store around town. Reusable bags are important and good for the environment. Remember, the more that we can reuse something, the less of an impact it has on the environment. So all of those single-use plastic bags or single-use paper bags we can help reduce that by using reusable bags. Remember, food waste composting in addition to yard waste composting is available at the Trash Transfer Station. Call 307-733-7678 for up-to-date hours of operation. Additional support for this fabulous podcast comes from the Vault of Jackson Hole. Jackson Hole's only climate-controlled wine storage facility, which is offering temperature-controlled storage for businesses and wine storage. Remember, collect today to indulge tomorrow. Call 307-248-6392 to connect today. John, welcome back. I'm thoroughly enjoying your story of your history here in in Jackson Hole, and you had just shared with us how um, living all the way up Fish Creek Road at the end, which is basically at the southern tip of Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. It was easy for the wintertime, and the county commissioners had to start plowing the road for you so your kids could go to school in the winter. I, I love it. I love it. Let's keep going, John. I'm interested to hear more of 
what you invented. You you said that you were uh, an inventor. You you are known for inventing a few things. Well, I <laughs> I I I just had a knack for saying, why aren't they doing it this way? Why aren't they doing it that way? And initially, I developed a lot of uh, tools and techniques for determining determining mechanical properties of snow for avalanche forecasters. And I started a little company called Snow Research Associates, which I was selling those tools and techniques uh, throughout the world to uh, all places in Europe, uh, Switzerland and France, Germany, Austria, where they were working with avalanches. And uh, it was it was a real uh, great feeling for me to to think I was developing these products not over not only for uh, uh, avalanche research, but in that process I had I had developed uh, ski poles that would link together, uh, and you pull a basket off, and it would ski poles would would turn into a, an eight or nine foot probe for probing for a victim of avalanche and uh, those really took off and it, it was called the lifelink ski pole and I I was having them made in, in California and and so they became popular all over the all over the, the world really and I thought well not only do you need to find where the victim is but you have to dig them out and people at that time were using these big aluminum shovels, uh, which were great for retrieving a, a body, but they were so heavy and would lift up so much snow that that uh, it was very wearing on, on people that were trying to rescue someone. I uh, developed a polycarbonate shovel, very hard plastic shovel that would fit in a fanny pack that I had designed uh, large enough to hold that shovel. Uh, and it had a handle that would was extendable and collapsible, and uh, that shovel would fit in a fanny pack. And these became popular all over the world, hmm. really. And uh, uh, by that time, I also owned the patent to the the croquis and the eyewear retainer called the croquis, which I had bought from Robbie Fuller. And the company had really had really grown, uh, and we were producing a lot of product and had about 40 employees. And And uh, I was sitting at my desk one day, and, and, and uh, the secretary came in and said, well, there's a guy here that would like to talk to you. And I said, oh, great. And he came in, and he was uh, started relating this story about uh, being on a uh, Mount Everest expedition and a friend of his was caught and buried in an avalanche, and he had one of these lifelink shovels, and he was able to retrieve this guy, luckily dig him out before he suffocated. And he said, I'll, I'll never ski without that shovel. And he subsequently became a ski patrolman up at Big Sky. Hmm. And I got a, a message that he had died in an avalanche he was a ski patrolman, had a shovel in his pack, but he was skiing with a gal who a fellow ski patrolman, and she didn't have a shovel. He was caught in a relatively small slide, and he suffocated and died. And I thought, God, that is so ironic and, mm. and so terrible. Uh, 
it just brought tears to my eyes uh, recalling that. And so that made a, a big push for ski patrols all over the world to have the <laughs> lifelike avalanche rescue shuttle. Hmm. And a lot of them said, well, you need a really big aluminum, stiff aluminum shovel. And I said, that, that shovel is great for body recovery, but it's not for rescue. Mm-hmm. For rescue, you need something that's small enough so on site you can shovel fast and quickly and get down to the, to the buried person mm-hmm. and retrieve them and revive them. And they said, well, you still and I said, use the big shovel for body recovery. The small shovel, the lifelink shovel, is for rescuing people, not for body recovery. And, and so people really accepted that as, as the ski patrols went from carrying the big aluminum shovel on their back to carrying the small uh, rescue shovel mm-hmm. in their fanny pack. And that was... Uh, that was very gratifying for me, and, and, and it, it, it really was a great argument against those people that said, well, you need a really big shovel. <laughs> I said, you can't carry the really big shovel. So, so that uh, ended up, well, now there are a number of people uh, here and throughout Europe that are making the, the small rescue shovels. Mm-hmm. And I, I really changed the whole trend from trying to have a big shovel to having a shovel that's really functional. Mm-hmm. Good for you. And that was very gratifying. Talk yeah. about changing an industry for backcountry skiing and for yeah. ski patrollers. Yeah. It, it, now, a, a lot of ski patrolmen still carry a shovel in their pack because mm-hmm. they realize they're the first one to be called. And if they can't get there and start rescuing start retrieving a, a, a buried person, mm-hmm. uh, it goes from being a live recovery to a body recovery, mm. and that's that's a real shame. Yeah. So that was, that was just one of those very gratifying things that uh, kind of gave my whole self a lot of purpose. That's fabulous. Yeah. That's very special. Your invention has probably helped save many lives over the years. Yeah, definitely. And... I, I am interested about your skiing at Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. There's a famous area that is a difficult spot to ski. And legend says is that it's named after you in some well, way. Well, it's named after uh, my partner in the float business, Charlie Sands, and myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, that goes back to a a day when uh, on part of my avalanche control route included Corbett's Couloir, and I would go to Corbett's and, and throw a bomb or two in there, and depending on conditions, I would I would jump in and ski Corbett's to do the rest of my route, which was intensely pole, which uh, was from the uh, near the bottom of uh, Corbett's Couloir. But uh, if I didn't, if conditions were such that I wouldn't jump into Corbett's, I would go down the ridge to throw a couple more bombs at potential avalanche sites. And there was a couloir that I used to stop and look down into and think, God, that's skiable, but you you have to jump into it. And it's very narrow 
and deep, and, and uh, you lose all sense of, of uh, how far down it is. You lose uh, depth perception. And one day, I, my, my buddy Charlie and I said, I, I said, Charlie, let's go down and take a look at this place. And, he, and we went down and, and looked at it. And I said, yeah, one of us is going to do that. And <laughs> it's one of those situations where one of us get, get ready to, to do it. And he said, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And then said, no, I lost it and back away. <laughs> and the other guy would move up and say, yeah, I'm going to do it. And, and well, we went back and forth uh, about who was going to actually do it first. And eventually one of us did it. And uh, then followed by the other by the uh, the other one, and uh, we ended up going down to the bottom. And in the ski patrol room at the bottom, we we were saying, "Hey, we just did that couloir that's down below Corbett's. We we skied it." And they all said, "Oh, the hell you did! You didn't really do that." And we said, "Well, let's catch the next tram up." And we, <laughs> a bunch of the ski patrolmen and I were, and Charlie were in the car, and we're going up and. And sure enough, there are two. There's a pair of tracks coming out of that that ski that uh, couloir that no one had heretofore skied, and uh, uh, kind of it was it was kind of legendary that Sims and Sands had, had, had skied that couloir, um, and then it became uh, challenging to other people who wanted to kind of ski the impossible or, or do something that became kind of a, a legendary thing to do. And people said, yeah, we just skied uh, the Sims and Sands couloir, which was the S&S couloir. Mm-hmm. And, and people would would go bragging about it. Yeah, I just did the S&S. And people say, awesome, you know. <laughs> so it's 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 not something you really ski. It's something you, you just have to jump into hmm. and then you ski out of it so uh, it has become kind of a, a, a legendary thing for people to ski and they said yeah i did s and s well i i think it's a testament to your character and charlie's character that after all of these years it's never been who jumped in first but you guys were buddies and it was more of Somebody did it first, but you guys, in in essence, you did it together. Yeah. And it's and it's not about who did it first, but it's the fact that you guys did it together. You were there yeah. to support each other. Yeah, it was kind of a team effort. Yeah, if you will. And and it, it was kind of legendary that people would come up. Okay, tell me who who went first. Mm-hmm. And uh, since we were at that time partners in the. Uh, float trip business it was which was sims and sands river mm-hmm. trips uh we became kind of legendary people would constantly say uh, particularly if we were out having a beer or two people would say oh well, if you please tell me mm-hmm. just tell me i won't tell anybody else <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it, it became uh, kind of a legend well kudos to you guys for just keeping it between yourselves and that's something that only the two of you and whoever created the world will will ever know yeah. the, the first person that skied it. So yeah. good for you guys. Now, you've also, if I am correct, started, you did another invention of another company 
for fly fishing? Oh, yeah. When I had the uh, whitewater trips, uh, that was good when the when the water was high and the river was running wild. But actually, when I had first come to Jackson, I, I, I started taking people down the river fishing, and I had grown up fly fishing. My, my parents taught me, or my father taught me fly fishing, and so I was a, a, a good fly fisherman, and when, when I had the river running business, that was great when the water was high and the water was off color. Uh, the water, the river wouldn't be fishable then, but then the water, when the, when the uh, runoff ended, uh, the white water business kind of died off up in the flag ranch. And so I started uh, guiding people fishing, and I, I developed a, a real good name as a, as a fly fishing guide, and kind of giving uh, to, to my nature, I would say, well, why don't people do this? As I, uh, when I was working, when I had, was, when I had the company uh, life making croquis, uh, we had neoprene, and I thought, uh, well, I'll make something called a gravel guard, which was a, a neoprene wrap that would go around your wading shoes to keep gravel from getting into your uh, wading shoes when you were in royally, royally water when gravel was free and would often get into your shoes, and that was a real nuisance. So I made the gravel guard, and I happened to be selling a, a lot of them in Japan. And my rep in, in Japan said, well, uh, could, you, could you make uh, your gravel guard longer? Because in Japan, the people have a kind of a fear of water, and they don't like to get in very deep, and they may wade up to their knees. Can you make the gravel guard so that it comes up to their knees so that their feet don't get cold and they don't get gravel in their shoes? And I said, yeah, sure. So I made these long gravel guards, and then I, of course, I, I thought, well, why not make waders out of neoprene? At that time, there were some fishing waders uh, uh, made of kind of a plastic-like material, and there were also uh, waders made of kind of a rubberized canvas. And uh, their big problem was that uh, the, the canvas waders were a danger because in, in fast water, they would kind of bag out and uh, there'd be a lot of pressure against the person if they got into fast water. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll make waders out of neoprene. And so I made uh, essentially waterproof waders out of neoprene. People had been wearing wetsuit material, which which by its nature gets water in it. Mm -hmm. And I essentially was making kind of a dry, waterproof neoprene hmm. uh, wader. And uh, that became the Sims uh, Fishing Company. And uh, we were selling those waders all over the world. Uh, and we occasionally would get a little competition, but uh, they just didn't have the expertise that we had to really make them truly waterproof. And then uh, we were selling uh, Gore-Tex material, and I thought, boy, maybe I would make, make these waders out of Gore-Tex. And we worked with the Gore company in developing the processes to make a, a really great Gore-Tex wader. And that joined uh, the Sims company with 
a, a lot of different products, and the waiter in particular uh, became known worldwide. And a lot of it was simply because of the name Sims had, had a lot of uh, uh, good feel to, to people. And there were other people that tried making neoprene waders, but uh, there were just some really kind of secret techniques to really make the, the product really a good waiter. Uh, and we had an, an exclusive with the Gore Company for being able to use the material Gore-Tex. Other people were making, uh, trying to make waders out of uh, foreign-made, uh, quote, Gore-Tex breathable uh, material, but uh, there was nothing that could really work as well as Gore-Tex, so that company really, really took off, and it, it, it joined uh, other little products that I had developed for the for fishermen, and so it was... It, it, it all kind of came down to my uh, feeling all the wise, well, why doesn't somebody do this? And, mm-hmm. and then my father said, well, go ahead and do it. You do it. And uh, so the, the Sims Company has, has developed a lot of other products, but their waiter is really the, the big product. And, mm. and uh, although initially I was, I was part of the uh, company, it became uh, too big. And uh, now I'm, I'm uh, although the company is still named the Sims Company, I no longer own part of the company, but I'm, uh, I'm always in uh, uh, contact with them, and and they're they're very good friends. And I'm when I go to the Sims Company, I'm always introduced to everybody as the founder, and and it's uh, it's a real kind of a feel good situation, and it's great to see the name Sims all over the place. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, uh, well, I won't get into that, but it, they're planning to do a kind of a movie relative to my starting the company. And, oh, how fascinating. And uh, that should be done this, this fall. Oh, well, and, I look forward it'll to... Be, it'll be interesting, I'm sure. Be, I'm sure it will be very well done. Well, we'll I'll keep an eye out for that, for certainly. Yeah. So, wow, think about everything that you have pondered on and just using your dad's advice that we'll just go do something about it, go make it. And so now at this stage in your life, you are an artist and a very well-recognized artist. And you're, you're working with what materials in your artwork? Uh, well, actually, I'm working with uh, uh, primarily uh, metal. Uh, fabricated metal, uh, steel, primarily steel and bronze. O- occasionally, some things made out of aluminum. But uh, uh, probably my the best known of those uh, various uh, products from the uh, artistic viewpoint. Where uh, one one day I was in Idaho Falls. I often used to go to scrapyards, uh, metal scrapyards, and and pick up various materials and I happened to be in one scrapyard and they had six uh, semicircles uh, of channel iron uh, that uh, had a, a radius of about uh, six feet. Uh, actually it was about an eight foot radius and I brought them home. They These 
these peaches weighed several hundred pounds a piece, and I'd, I'd laid them out in my driveway, and I was looking at them, and, and I, I happened to have a, an eight-foot stepladder, and I got up on the stepladder and was looking down at them, and somehow I saw this bison-like hmm. shape, and I, I ended up welding uh, two of these arcs together into a, a perfect circle, and then I laid another uh, arc out uh, as as a head, and and this uh, bison figure really started developing in my mind, and I uh, I said, well, the, the other uh, semicircle could be uh, the hind leg, and I laid it out such that it was kind of a leg uh, attached to the primary circle about two-thirds of the way back. And then the whole thing just came to me, and I I cut another one of the uh, arcs and and made it the tail. And then the other full semicircle I laid out, so it became the head. And it ended up with I had created this bison that was like, 20 feet long and 14 feet tall, utilizing these arcs. And I thought, God, that's really an interesting piece. Uh, And it's fascinating that I used every inch of those six semicircles. And uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Tom Montgomery, a fellow I had gotten into fish guiding and and we were really good friends, and he was also an excellent photographer. Uh, came down and he said, "Let's let's get some good pictures of that that bison." And he he got one picture of me standing in the center of the bison, uh, with the rest of it around me, and uh, that image uh, became very well known. And uh, subsequently, that bison uh, has been remade always with the three identical circles, uh, some of them in platinum uh, as as necklaces, uh, maybe only an inch long. And in the inch long bison is as recognizable as the 20 foot long bison. And it's, it's just a remarkable uh, piece that doesn't lose anything going from an inch long to 20 feet long. And uh, a local jeweler here in Jackson uh, has them made in everything from uh, gold and silver, platinum, and uh, they're selling all over the world. Hmm. (laughs) Uh, And it's a real joy to me to see people wearing that piece as a piece of jewelry when the initial one was something 20 feet long. Hmm. And it's, it's become known all over the world. <laughs> did the original piece become um, a display someplace? I'm sorry? Did your original piece become a display someplace? Oh, right now, let's see, where is that original piece? Well, it, a, a similar one that I made out of out of flat steel bar, uh, I, I mounted it along the village road, Zetan Village Road. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was initially it was painted silver, and it, it developed a, a 
real following, people would say, oh, I got to take you out and show you the bison on the village road. And, and I, I think a lot of people don't know the history of it, and they don't know that it was John Sims's bison. It was just this piece of art along the village road. And uh, it subsequently, well, within the last couple of years, got uh, that particular bison got moved out to the Teton Village. It was placed in Teton Village, where it resides to this day. That's fabulous. I, I love it. John, you are a man of a who has a lengthy story and has made an enormous impact on not just this community here in Jackson, but many mountain communities and many lives. And, and, and it's an impact that it was came from, well, you see a problem and you just do something about it. And I appreciate and value your creativeness and ingenuity and willingness to just get out there and, and do something. And, and I think you, I feel as though that you are certainly an inspiration that um, where you are in, in your life that, that you don't stop. You just keep on going, going and enjoying life and you continue keeping your doing more and more and adding value to to life through artwork or just being a, a phenomenal person and, and I, w- I just want to say thank you for well i i i appreciate uh, your recognition of, of that and it's it is great that a lot of people don't know me per se but they know the bison mm-hmm. and uh other people will say, oh, you're the bison guy. <laughs> uh, well, you're more than the bison guy. <laughs> you, you're a lot more than that, for sure. Now, if people wanted to reach out to you and, and connect with you and see more of your, your artwork or just chat with you in some way, do you have a, a website? Yeah, I have a website at johnesims.com. johnesims.com. Right. And does that have a way that people can con- connect with you and sure. submit a contact? Yeah, definitely. Fabulous. And and I'm always open to uh, people discussing any of the various things I've done. And and I've I've also uh, I'm very open to helping other people that have ideas and encouraging them to to move along with them. And uh, I've been, I I've been very privileged, and I and I. Very fortunate to have a very supportive wife who, hmm. uh, I think, being married to an artist is is kind of a, a challenge because often their mind is off there uh, thinking of something else, and and uh, and I have uh, two wonderful daughters, and uh, uh, four or five years ago I. I got uh, a message from a, a gal saying, I have every reason to believe you're my father. And uh, it turned out she was uh, uh, born in Colorado and uh, subsequently adopted and, and brought up in Minnesota. And she's very bright and has had a, a very successful career, but she... Uh, she contacted me and, and 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 we talked a little bit and and then met and um, we've become very close and she and her co-sisters are are very close and she's become a, a very big part of our life and comes and spends time with us and 
and uh, it's wonderful to to have it. It's it's kind of uh, part of your life that you're you're not not really ashamed of, but you but you're a kind of footloose and and fancy free, and subsequently created this wonderful person, and uh, she's become a, a very big part of our life and. It's. I. I just. I've. I've been very, very fortunate in my my life in practically everything I've I've done. has been very, very gratifying. That's a. I appreciate you sharing the personal side of of life as well, and to say that we have something. We all probably have something out there, and we can embrace those moments and make them very special and make a huge impact on somebody else's life and add a lot more substance to our own lives as well. And well, I appreciate it. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very open to talking with anybody who has ideas and says, well, what, what do I do with the idea? And I said, well, let, let, let's sit down and let's talk about it and, and, and uh, see where, whether it's something worth pursuing or it's just a wonderful thing to have been able to use your mind and come up with these mm-hmm. with these ideas and I uh, I can appreciate my mind very much for my ability to visualize things and and uh, often bring those visualizations uh, to fruition with something uh, that's fabricated or or whatever and I, my mind is always constantly thinking of different ideas and things to do with something. Well, I'm glad it is. And we all need people like you out there in the world who are always thinking of something new and exciting for for this world. Uh, John, thank you for coming and, and talking with me today. You, um, you're a special person and you have a very uh, special story and all of our stories are unique. And, and, I'm, and I'm glad that we had the opportunity to sit down and talk and have you share your story today with all of us? Well, thank you. Was it, I, I, I really welcome the opportunity, and I hope that, that my I, uh, my speaking with you might encourage other people to follow through on ideas that they have. And and I'm always open. I always have people coming to me with ideas and say, "What can I do with it?" And I say, "Well, let's let's talk about it." Mm-hmm. Indeed. Well, thank you, John. Appreciate it. Have a good day. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in and listening. Whether you're walking in the cornfields, on a hike today, or walking by a river, I really appreciate you tuning in. So get out there and share this episode with other folks. Give us a rating, five stars, or a little review so it makes it easier for other people to find this entertainment as well. Thank you to Michael Morey, who does the editing every week and our marketing. And I couldn't do this without the support of my wife, Laura, and my boys, Lewis and William. I sure hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to seeing you back for the next episode of, that's right, the Jackson Hole Connection.